Hey everybody, I'm Dr. Deb, and welcome to another episode of PTSD and Beyond. Welcome to the PTSD and Beyond podcast, where we give you insights into post-traumatic stress, trauma recovery, healing, and beyond. I'm Dr. Deb Lind, and in each episode, I have a conversation with a guest who will stimulate your mind, touch your heart, and connect with your spirit, and also give you a greater understanding of yourself and others on this healing and recovery journey walked by so many of us before, wounded healers with lived experience and heroes. Hopefully, we'll also provide a glimpse into possibilities and purpose, hope, and inspiration. Thanks for listening and enjoy the podcast. One last thing, guys, before we dive into today's episode, if you'd like an ad-free experience and like early access to new episodes and special events, I want to let you know you can join us at patreon.com. That is patreon.com forward slash PTSD and beyond. All right, let's do it. Hey everybody, it's Dr. Deb here with PTSD and Beyond. Just want to give a trigger warning for this particular episode of suicide ideation and make it formal that there is a trigger warning for this particular episode with suicide ideation. Hey everybody, it's Dr. Deb here with PTSD and Beyond and we want to welcome back author and retired psychotherapist from the great white North. It's starting to feel a little bit like fall here in Minnesota. So we're getting your weather, uh, T Wilton Dale, Terry, thanks again for coming back to the show. Hey, it's great to be here. And have I got a story for you? Yeah. So for folks that are listening, why, uh, Terry's coming back on the program is we've been hinting around about how to find a therapist some questions that people can, you know, keep in the back of their mind as well as things that they can ask. And we want to take it a little bit deeper with the relationship of therapist and client. And what does that relationship look like? And what happens when the relationship isn't vibing? Like, what do we do? You know, is there an intervention that we can do with uh, our own relationship with the therapist, as well as from a therapist's perspective, what are some things that is on the practitioner end that we can be mindful of or to be mindful of when working with clients. And Terry's got some great stories. I actually have a really cool story and we're just going to take the convo from there. So let's, uh, let's all grab our favorite beverage and uh, listen to Terry because he's such a great storyteller. I mean, you are like the master of storytelling and we need to get like a little fiddle or something behind you to, or a little acoustic. I actually have a, an acoustic guitar here <laughs> where we can play a little strumming and then, you know, uh, fade into the storyteller. Well, why don't we just jump right in? And I want to tell a story about a time I screwed up. So we'll, we'll start there. And this is a story of Joe. And it is a story from many, many years ago. And I was working for the government outpatients uh, mental health program. And we got a call that there was a person in the workplace that was really having a lot of difficulty. And could someone come and see to him? And I happened to be the person that was on call that day. So I went out and I found Joe and uh, he was... He was working in like a kid's arcade, but back then 
arcades were a bit different. They were pinball machines and tabletop hockey. Maybe there was Pac-Man, but it was quite a long time ago. So anyway, and he was obviously distressed. He was talking a mile a minute. Oh, no, maybe not a mile a minute, maybe 10 miles a minute. (laughs) And completely disorganized. He was sort of huddled down in a corner. And so I got down with him and started to try to process what he was saying. Um, His brain was going much, much faster than my brain was. So I had to kind of put myself on, on high speed just to keep up with him. And finally, at one point, he said he was really tired. So I said to him, would it be okay if I got you to a doctor and maybe the doctor can give you something that that you get some sleep so you can feel better? And he agreed. So Joe agreed to go with me. And so we went to the clinic and I'm in a small prairie city. So there's just one medical clinic. It's where my doctor was. And I go in with Joe and um, lo and behold, sitting in the reception area of the waiting room is the wife of one of my colleagues. And she saw me bring this fellow in. She knew exactly what I was probably up to. And I introduced him at the counter, but I got his name wrong. And by this point, for 45 minutes, I've just been going like bananas, right? And I'm exhausted. And I got his name wrong. And suddenly, Joe, in the middle of all of his pressured speech, stops and looks at me and says, you're embarrassing me in public. Okay. So I try to stumble out an apology and I say, Panabi's perfect. And Joe looks at me and says, who's Panabi? I've been trying to say nobody's perfect, but it came out Panabi's perfect because my brain's frazzled. And I said, well, I guess I must be Panabi. And for the air after Joe called me Penubby for the entire, not only did I get him into hospital, but I visited him in the hospital. I, I had him for a year or more afterwards to keep him settled down. We're sitting in the waiting room of, this, of the doctor's office, and he reaches in his pocket and he pulls out a handful of marbles. Because he worked in an arcade, right? And so anyway, he reaches out to give me the marbles. And I fold his fingers over the marbles in his hand. And I said, no, Joe, I think you need all your marbles today. And he laughed and laughed and laughed about needing all of his marbles. Well, we got him into hospital. They got him straightened, settled down and and straightened out and and all that sort of stuff. And I worked with him for quite a while. And we got, you know, quite a, a, a positive relationship going. But About a year later, he said, Panabi, I have something I need to tell you. I said, well, what is it, Joe? And he says, I don't know whether you remember this, but back on that very first day that we met, you said something and it really hurt my feelings. And I need to let you know what you said that hurt my feelings. And he did. I don't remember exactly what it was. Might be what was about the marbles. But Joe had the ability to come back to me and to say, you did something and it hurt me. And I need to let you know that. And which is an amazing thing on the part of Joe that he was able to do that. Amazing thing he could remember in detail what happened on that day because his mind was just going like bananas. And and so was mine trying to keep up. But, you know, what I want to say about this is that there are times that we as therapists 
even in our best intentions, don't get it right. Mm -hmm. There are times when we don't read the dynamics of the relationship. We don't perceive whether or not what we're doing might be hurting rather than helping. Right. How often, too, uh, is the relationship at a point where the client can actually say, hey, you know, fill in the blank, hey, therapist person, um, there was something that I want to talk about, and it was a situation where I experienced something that you did that hurt me, where where the use of, first of all, the use of, well, the space is um, safe where a person feels comfortable, right, to be vulnerable, to actually say this right. phrase, you know, I was hurt in this manner, as well as to use you language, which can be, you know, attacking in itself. It can be perceived that way. Um, again, circling back to the safe space that therapists hold, at least, you know, the belief is there that therapists hold that space where a client of theirs can feel comfortable to go back to say, no matter the duration of time, right, that's passed, hey, there was something that happened that I want to talk about because when this happened, it hurt my feelings. When you did blank, it hurt me. That's extremely powerful. I think that's one of the first key pieces that we can make note of on relationships. Well, there's many different layers there. How did you feel when he shared this? I felt really awful because obviously I held him in high respect. Um, I felt very thankful that he was able to do that. Um, I was also much younger at that point. Of course, for all of my life, I've been much younger than I am now. Anyway, um, so it was a really important for me um, as a younger therapist to, to, to get that feedback. During the time that we're going to discuss, I'm going to talk about how the therapist can set it up so that that can be possible. Excellent. All right, let's, ta let's talk about that. What are well, some ways that people can you know, create their um, practice, including for newer therapists, right? There was a situation that happened on social media where, um, you know, I was actually on the receiving end of, of uh, comments from therapists who, um, if in my mind, what I was thinking about is if their client had seen their behavior and actions and the words that they were saying, uh, first of all, how does that affect the reputation of to do no harm? Secondly, how does that affect the relationship of their clients that maybe are on social media to see what do they post and how do they respond? Would a person want somebody to help them with their own mental health challenges behaving in those manners? And then the other thing is, you know, if uh, folks are part of associations where we take, um, you know, we are part of ethics committees that evaluate and to assure the um, credibility and professionalism, how does it affect there, you know, the, the certain behaviors? So with what you're speaking about, I'm curious to know too, for a practitioner in, in any type of tenure, so just starting out, you know, mid-career, late career, mentoring others, how can therapists then be mindful of what they do and what they say also on social media, as well as in their own private practice to be in harmony with the do no harm aspect and to set that space up for people to feel comfortable to actually um, share those moments of 
if they ever happen, you know, this happened and it, it made me feel a, a way that I didn't like to feel. Well, I'm going to get there, but I have a little bit of theory first, okay. story first, but then I'm going to get to some, some practical ideas. So I'm going to jump in. When I did my hypnosis training a number of years ago, one of the things they instructed me on was the different postures that the hypnotist could take to the client he was hypnotizing. And one of the postures was an authority posture. Yep. So the authority posture, you know, the person's in trance and the hypnotist says, you know, when the phone rings, you'll start to cluck like a chicken, you know, directive. The other posture was a posture of enabling. And the posture of enabling was one of, um, as you begin to focus on your breathing, you may find yourself experiencing please note what you experience and let me know. So there's a sense of discovery, but it's coming from inside the person rather than the hypnotist. Uh, yeah, the directive. And these two postures are also part of the psychotherapeutic relationship. So the psychotherapist can take an expert authority position they're the ones with the knowledge of psychiatric diagnoses. They're the ones that select the treatment and, and um, uh, impose the treatment. Or the psychotherapist could take a enabling position. And the enabling position can be one of compassion, can be one of empathy and curiosity. And in that therapeutic posture, what happens is the solutions for the client's problems emerge within the client rather than being imposed from the part of the therapist. Now, I want to say that a healthy therapeutic relationship can shift between these two postures. So um, initially, if someone came to me and they were really overwhelmed and chaotic, I would have to take a more authoritative posture in order to get their nervous system regulated down so we could begin to work things through, maybe do some uh, fairly directive things around management of the, of the immediate symptoms, that sort of thing. And that would bring the person into a position where we could begin to explore and I could then shift to that other side. Um, now, what happens is that therapists can be good at one or the other and not flexible about moving in between the two of them. Mm -hmm. And that's where we can get, um, if, particularly if, if the therapist is taking an authority or an expert posture, yep. then they can be imposing um, a way of dealing with the problem on the client that is not as workable as it should be. Mm -hmm. um, I have what I call Wilton's Law, and Wilton's Law is if what you're doing right now isn't working, do it harder. Yeah, it's almost like taking a rigid stance and and pushing and suppressing the ability to be aware as well as embracing agility. Yes. And so um, where we have, and particularly where um, the practitioner is able to do things that affect the functioning of the brain itself, like drugs or ECT, mm. if we get into the position where um, there's diminishing benefits in terms of what they're doing. They just may pile on more drugs or they might do more sessions of ECT, hoping that it will finally break through. 
and that can become very harmful and it can leave the client feeling uh, very unempowered, unempowered. But on the other hand, with the therapist that is compassionate, empathetic and encouraging and supportive, it can get to the point where things are slowing down. They're not, we get mission creep where we move from one problem to another, um, right. think can get um, unsettled or, or unproductive. And so it's important that we recognize what the dynamic of the relationship is as to whether or not that's appropriate for the stage of therapy that the person is at. And uh, when we talked about choosing a therapist, we talked a lot about picking therapists that are the fit for you in terms of your personality and things they can do. Um, and I think it's also important to realize that once you're there, it's important to keep working at making it fit. Hey, everybody. It's Dr. Deb. Thank you so much for being here today and listening to the PTSD and Beyond podcast. To learn more about our workshops, keynotes, as well as individual coaching, give us a shout out at Dr. Deb at ptsdandbeyond.org. Now, I want to tell a story because it's it's a really favorite story. Oh, first of all, I want to say that sometimes uh, people who are experts on psychotherapy will come up, up with the belief that therapy has to be planned, it has to be executed, um, there has to be a very clear relationship between what the therapist is doing and the client problem, and they're very hostile towards therapy that is more emergent, that is working towards the gradual development of a solution within, within the client. Um, the people who like to say that therapy is always protocol-driven and well-planned, there might be university professors or managers who do plan their lives out and do accomplish things really well by being that intentional and that directive. Um, but that might not be a fit for everyone. And this sets up the next story that I want to tell you. Okay. So I'm going to tell you the story about Hilda. And Hilda, oh, I should say that when I'm telling stories, I've changed details and names just to make sure that I'm not violating privacies. Hilda was referred to me by her lawyer. And she had gone into her lawyer to have estate planning done a will and disposition of assets and everything. And she said to her, her lawyer that she was doing this because she was going to kill herself on July the 17th. It was March. Wow. And the lawyer agreed to do all the work with her in terms of her will and estate and stuff like that. But he said, I think you better talk to somebody about your intention. And so he suggested me. So Hilda came to me. And I sat with her, and she was indeed very sad and very, very worn out. And she told me the story. Her husband had recently died from a long, protracted illness, and he was in a great deal of pain, which really changed the personality dynamics of the relationship. She had given up so much of her life to take care of him in his final years and months, but this had really worn on her. And when he died, she was just left completely empty. And that was what was going into the thought that um, she was going to take her own life. 
And then I asked, well, why July 17th? This is March. Why July 17th? And she said that her daughter was going to have a baby and the baby was due on the 10th of July. And she wanted to live long enough to see and hold her granddaughter. And then when everybody was ooing and aahing over the baby, she could just simply slip out. And I said to her, I said, that's several months ahead. And what I'm thinking is you need to have another human that can be with you and present as you walk this very difficult journey of your life. And I'm wondering if you would allow me to be that other person just to walk along with you for the next several months of your life. And she looked at me and she said, well, that's the last thing in the world I ever thought a psychologist would say to me. But she agreed. So we started to work together and explore. And I was taking the very emergent. I I could have taken the authority expert position and said, let's get you on on some medication, maybe get you into hospital and see if we can get these suicidal thoughts out of your head and all that sort of stuff. But instead of that, I took a very compassionate and um, empathetic approach to her. We explored what her life had been like and what it was like now. And in June, she came to me and she said, I have a problem. So I said, well, what's the problem? She said, well, my niece has just approached me and she's getting married in August. And I have been the soloist at the wedding for all of the different nieces and nephews in our large family. And I don't want to disappoint her. And how do I tell her? And indeed, I said, that's a really big problem. I don't know exactly what we're going to do about that. And she came back the next week and she said, I decided what I'm going to do. She said, I'm going to delay my date so that I can sing at my niece's wedding. And I said, well, I'll continue to walk along with you. Well, come August, she came to me and she said, I have a problem. I said, well, what's the problem, Hilda? And she said, well, every September long weekend, I host a barbecue in my backyard for all the families in the extended family. And the kids all come and they're wearing their first day of going back to school clothes. And we take pictures and do a fashion show and we have a barbecue. It's the last event of the summer. I won't be able to do that. And I, I have to tell people that they can't come. So I said, well, that is, I don't know what we can do about that. And the next week, of course, she came back and she said, I've decided to delay my date. We stopped working together about November. She was starting to rebuild her life again, and she didn't need to see me any longer. But the lawyer came to me, oh, three or four years later. This is what the benefit of working in a small town. He came to me and he said, do you remember Hilda? And I said, yes, I do remember Hilda. Hilda died. And then he looked at me and he said, it was natural causes. Now, I tell the story because it's a story of that emerging, evolving solutions coming from within the client. And it was a time that it was a very precious and very positive thing, rather than me imposing a solution on on Hilda and that problem. If I had have tried to put together the plan for what I was going to do at the beginning of the therapy, there's no way I could have come up with that plan. Yeah, I think think that there's important to note too, there's discussion often between therapists that I've seen online on social media in particular discussion about 
um, therapists that don't put together a plan versus therapists that do put together a plan. And what I like about the stories that you share is it's not an either or. It's not it's not the opposite ends of the spectrum. It is meeting a person with where they're at and providing what they need as opposed to what the rigidity of the plan, what the theory says, what the practice says. It's what the person needs. And I want to clarify something here. We've been talking about an authority posture and then an enabling. And I'm wondering if it's really, is it an enabling or is it empathy, an empathy position? You know, when I was preparing to talk to you, I was trying, struggling with the word because enabling can have a really negative connotation. Um, but I wanted to stay with it because what it does it is it enables the client. It gives the ability for the solution to come from within the client rather than on the therapist part. Now, so enabling versus enabling. Probably, yeah. Okay. And enabling does tend to have a bit of a negative connotation in in the addictions field. The, but what we're looking at, and um, well, in the in the narcissist field too, yeah. a person a person who is a survivor of abuse, um, right. flying monkeys, right? They won't say what needs to be said, so they enable the narcissist behavior. I just want to clarify for our our audience because. Um, you know, uh, we talked about empathy, and so it's it's an it's it's abling and allowing something to emerge organically based on what the client needs, which I think is a really important thing to talk about in itself because the relationship that we have with our therapist sometimes I find that it's with any relationship with in the medical community with peer support we talk about and encourage people ways to develop the skill of empowerment, right? So taking, taking empowerment of your own, of your own um, journey, along with your team, your therapist team, your medical team, educating yourself on certain terms and concepts to, to know what they mean. So that way you're proactive within your journey, as opposed to reactive and people are just telling you what to do, which goes back to the authority position, right? I'm being told what to do. For some people, that's not going to work. For some people, it might resonate, but it might resonate in a way of that's what's familiar, not necessarily about what is best for that person. The um, One of the ways I used to, when I, especially when I was supervising people coming into the field, is to talk about the difference between engineered solutions versus um, emergent solutions. Yep. And one of the things when I was when I was working with with the people coming in is to say most mental health difficulties are both complex and ambiguous. Mm -hmm. And so, don't think you can just engineer a solution to them mm -hmm. to develop that solution in a collaborative way with your client. Now, I want to talk about how we can set this, the relationship up so that um, it doesn't get into these difficulties of mismatch. Mm -hmm. And I want to talk first about, first of all, about prevention. Um, when I was working with people on the first session that I saw them, I saved enough time at the end of the session that I could ask them three questions. The first question I asked was, 
Oh, and this came after I shared with them a little bit of my perspective on what they had told me, what their problems were, some things that I could give them a little bit of hope in terms of us being able to work things out, that sort of thing. And after I had done so, I asked them the question, is there anything that I've said in the last few minutes that suggests to you I've misunderstood something that you tried to tell me? Mm-hmm. And it, that question, if there was something that I misunderstood, wow, that's really important to get corrected right after, right off the top, right? Yep. But it also gave the message to the client that sometimes this guy misunderstands and it's okay for me to correct him if he misunderstands. So that was a message that seeded in right at the beginning of the therapy relationship that if a misunderstanding misunderstanding occurs, we can do something about it. So the second question I asked was, is there anything that you wanted to tell me today that we haven't gotten to, that we've missed? This is a really important question. Now, it also tells the client that the things that are important to them are important to the, to the therapist as well. Right. And it tells the client that, okay, sometimes we might miss things. And if we take just a moment and go back and think it through, Mm -hmm. he's willing to listen and to catch the things that are important to me. Yep. The third question that I asked was, do you have any questions you want to ask me? They can be about the way that I work or my beliefs or values, what, what we might expect in terms of where this might go, that sort of thing. That gave the clients the feeling that, yes, they weren't, this wasn't just an authority relationship in which I was the only one that got to set the agenda by (laughs) asking the questions. They could do so as well. So those three questions, and they're easy to incorporate. You just have to leave about five or 10 minutes at the end of the time that you've got for the client in order to ask them. But they pay off really, really well. Well, it sets a stage too for the person to feel that they've been heard. And then yeah. it also validates what's concerning and it does, it shows what's concerning for them is also of importance to the therapist. And then what I like about the last question is it humanizes the relationship. What is yes. it about me that you would like to know? What would you yeah. like to know about my practice? It could even be, you know, if you'd like, to know some hobbies. What I find, and I say hobbies because every practitioner's office is decorated in a certain way that is reflective of who they are. So maybe there's natural plants, maybe there's crystals, what kind of books are on the shelf? What does the walls look like? What are the pictures? Where's, where are things, you know, situated? How is the office organized? What does the sofa look like? You know, what, what, what am I sitting in? Do I have an option to sit on a love seat or a chair? What does that look like? What does the therapist sit in? What do they, what do they typically sit in? Do they move around? So it humanizes that relationship of, of professionalism along with where people too. Right. And I also heard that with the second question too, was, you know, did I get everything? Did I hear you correctly? Am I understanding things correctly? Again, it humanizes 
and brings back that we are people too. We're going to make mistakes. We might not hear it right. I might misinterpret things. And it and it shows too how communication is so, so important. We've got a few minutes here left okay. of our session today. What are some other things you'd like sure. to share with our audience, Terry? So I talked about prevention in terms of those three questions in the initial session. Then if we get into the middle of therapy, and if we get into the therapeutic doldrums or that muddle in the middle where it doesn't seem like it's going anywhere, yeah. or we're trying a, a therapy approach and we're getting diminishing returns, I would like to, I would use the question, let's take a moment and reflect on what we're doing. Is this working for you? Mm. And um, uh, let's just check in. We might go back to the initial questions, but that allows people to step out of what we're doing and to look back on it and think about it. Mm -hmm. And it might be at that stage that we need to do some different things. Maybe we need to meet less frequently, or perhaps we need you, the client to do some other things that can bring, they can bring back like, go to an ashram and have that experience of living in a, a healthy environment or attending a personal development workshop or reading memoirs of people that face the same type of issues that they're facing so that they can get some new information and bring that back to therapy. I also would like like to ask the question, are we done yet? And if we don't think we are, how will we know when we are? Yep. And as when you ask the question rather than just imposing, well, I think I think we, <laughs> right. I, I think we're done here. <laughs> you know, it's pretty health. abrupt, isn't it? It makes doesn't make you feel real um, good. Okay, I've I've heard it said. I think we're done here. Um, if we can ask the question, how would we know when we were done? That gives us a little bit of an idea as mm -hmm. to where we where where we're going and when we might get there. So with those types of questions, we can help resolve that sense of, um, hey, we're in the middle of this and we're maybe losing our way or it's not working out so well for us. Don't you think couples should be doing something like that too? Checking I think, in? I think it'd be a good idea. You know, hey, did I say that? Okay. I mean, we had that, we had that little bit of a disagreement. So how, how you feeling? Did that work? Do I need to change anything? Are we yeah. good? How will we know that we're good? Yeah. <laughs> right? Those are important questions. And, you know, the, and that is true about all relationships, but it's really important about the therapy relationship, because if the therapy relationship goes wrong, it can be, it can become very hurtful. Absolutely. Now, I want to say one other thing. Um, I practiced as a psychologist in private practice for 30 years. So I was pretty much in that time without a lot of managers telling me what I could do and when I could do it and I better stop and all that sort of thing. Over that period of time, by the time I came to the end, I retired three years ago. By the time I came to the end, there were a number of people on my caseload who had been there for a long, long time. And they were folk that simply functioned better because they had the regular support. And so we had to figure out how they would, would proceed once I had retired. But I saw hundreds, probably thousands of clients in that 30 year time period. 
And only that couple of dozen or so people were the ones that stayed on. And we often think in, in terms of psychotherapy that it has to come to an end or that it, um, if it goes on for years, then there must be something wrong with it. And yet I think for some individuals, it is healthy for that therapy support to be there. And I think about massage therapy in terms of if we have a really good massage and we feel better afterwards, that doesn't mean that, well, we've gotten the massage part of our life all tidied up and taken care of. We don't need right. to do that again. Um, we recognize that with massage therapy, it is something that supports ongoing healthy functioning. Mm -hmm. And sometimes in terms of therapy, there can be people who um, will benefit from that over long term. Now, it has to stay healthy and it has to stay for the benefit of the client rather than so the therapist always has uh, the appointment slot at three o'clock on Thursday afternoon filled. Mm -hmm. You know, you know there, there needs to be that sense that this is this is what is the fit for the well-being of the client. Yep. And for some people, too, they don't have that support system or support person um, within their inner circle, within their family. So, I mean, there are many different reasons why uh, therapeutic relationships start, you know, continue on. I was trying to recall something that um, Dr. Pam Hall said. She calculated the, the uh, mathematical percentage of when a, a person meets with a therapist for 50 minutes, let's just say every week, and out of the duration of an entire week, I think it came out to be um, 0.05%. It's either 0 0.05 or 0.08% of a person's, you know, waking state. Uh, and that's the impact of a therapy session. So it's 50 minutes. And how can there be a sustainability within what was done in that 50 minute inter, you know, session to have it sustainable when it's only at a 0.05 or 0.08% of a person's waking state throughout the week. We need to uh, wrap up here. So is there any other one little other tidbit you'd like to share with our group today? There's one thing that I forgot to say at the beginning, and it's very self-evident, but I do want to make sure we include it. And that is, it is the onus on the therapist to ensure the therapy relationship is not contaminated by other relationships between the therapist and the client. So the therapy relationship uh, or the relationship between the therapist and the client can never be a sexual relationship that um, we, there shouldn't be other layers or friendships. It has to be, a, it has to be a boundary. There's a boundary there of professionalism. And one of the ways that therapy relation or the therapy relationship can get unhealthy is if those boundaries begin to get crossed. Right. Correct. And um, that's a point that we always should keep in mind. Um, and as being danger signs that the therapy is moving in the wrong direction. Right. Correct. Um, yeah, yeah so I think that's I just part of to make sure we, we got that set at some point. So we yeah. got it set at some point. Awesome. So I think that's about it in terms of the, the, the things that we um, 
there probably are other things that are going to come to mind, maybe even other stories that may come to mind, but maybe we can catch those on another podcast coming up. Well, I know that we've got another one coming up. We're going to talk about Star Trek and the future of mental health. So as a matter of fact, um, we do have it on the calendar, I believe so. Yes. Yeah, we're going to record next week. Yeah, so so we've got that coming up. And uh, for folks that are here, I want to give a big shout out real quickly here to our friends down under. I mean, you guys completely, you mates, right? Hey, mate, right? Good day. Uh, You guys completely blow us away. We are, meaning the PTSD and Beyond podcast is within the top 200 podcasts in Australia for mental health. I can't thank the listeners down there enough. Thank you so much. You know, send us an email at hello at PTSD and beyond. Let us know who you are and we'll give you a shout out here. If you've got something that uh, you want to comment on, we will certainly, you know, um, broadcast your, your comment and your feedback. And thank you again for being here, Terry. It's always a pleasure to talk with you and uh, for all our listeners, take what resonates and go beyond guys. This is Dr. Deb with PTSD and beyond. We'll see you again next week.